number one. It's number one. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the 21st episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is Saturday, the 14th of December 2012, and I'm your host, Tom O'Brien. This week, we talk with the jazz pianist, band leader, teacher, and composer, Dorian Ford. I met Dorian at a jazz gig a couple of months ago. Since we couldn't stop talking about music, I thought, why not get him on the show? A welcome departure from all this goddamn politics and economics. While on our musical meander, we discuss the history of jazz, its relation to classical music, and the effects of the academization of the modern American classical music we call jazz. We also talk about how music is a function of its economic and cultural conditions and the K-pop phenomenon that is Gangnam Style. This week, the show has a new subscriber in Jarek McHage, who increased his existing subscription up to the high roller status. Muchas bingo bango, Jarek! you'd like to keep the proverbial financial wolves from the door of the podcast's rackety shed, you can send me a few bob by clicking on the donate button on the podcast website. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can leave a comment on the episode itself, join the Facebook group, or just send me an email to alpha2omegapodcast, all one word with the number 2, at gmail.com and I swear to Jeebus I will respond within minutes. So, to the interview. Dorian Ford describes himself as a piano player. He is also the leader of the eponymous Dorian Ford Quartet who I was lucky enough to catch last month playing at the newly opened St. James's Theatre Studio in Victoria, London. He is also the programmer for the gigs at the St. James's Theatre every Friday night, where you can hear the finest in jazz and roots music perform in a really great setting. If you'd like to find out more about these gigs or the man himself, you can check out his blog, dorianfordjazzandroots.tumblr.com or his website, www.dorianford.co.uk. We join the interview as we discuss the mentalist genius of Sunra. You, you were saying it's a shame that you've only just heard of Sunra in the last whenever it is. And I guess that's to do with the market forces, isn't it? That's my obsession. You know, that would be one of the things that I think about. Why some things are easier to access than others. Knowledge, power, information. This stuff is uh, crucial. Uh, it's crucial to uh, our understanding of Sun Ra, our understanding of music, our understanding of ourselves. So you were saying earlier that Sun Ra, you think he, he reacted in, his, in, in some sense to his surroundings as 
respect to the race issue in America that mm. he decided that affect this I'm not from America at all I'm going to be from I would have thought so yeah. planet X that, that, that's how I see it I think that's probably the best way of dealing with the uh, you know the travesty of, uh, of of the American social economic system is to just simply get out you know uh, a lot of Americans did it Sun Ra did it really quite sort of well he did it in a cosmic way you know he did it intergalactically he didn't need to be Sonny Blount he didn't need to be from whatever state it was he was from he was from another place altogether uh, and that seems like a perfectly logical solution to what is something that you know that, that, is, that is the logical step so we, we met a, a few months ago when we went to see this young Austrian piano player yes indeed who shall remain nameless yeah talk to me about your opinions on that Hey. Recital is probably a better word. Than, than <laughs> this, is, this, this is how it all started, right, Tom? Yeah. This, is, this is how we ended up realizing that we had a, uh, an infinite conversation. Well, I mean, it was um, a phenomenon. It was a cultural phenomenon. Our, our musician had won a number of prizes and was known to be a great torchbearer for the music, or so it seemed from from the you know the attendant publicity and, the, and on all that stuff. I think what we heard in the end was somebody who's very enthusiastic and in a way I think, as I said to you, I think that they, they were sort of somehow in a way blissfully ignorant of the, the, the grand tradition that they are part of if they step into playing something called jazz piano. So when you talk about his ignorance, what do you, what do you mean by this? Maybe actually ignorance is the wrong word. It's more unaware, actually. I think that's a much fairer word to use. And, and of course, we're talking two things here. We're talking with language and English to talk about the language music, which is a, such, a, such a challenge in itself. I just felt, as somebody who plays piano and somebody who plays improvised music and somebody who recognises that, in a way, the... Wow, you know, the source of improvised music, let's say, or the, or the kind of the body of improvised music, as, as I hear it, maybe as we all hear it, is something that's come out of 20th century American musical practice. And, th and I know that we, we, we quickly got onto that, or certainly when I'm hearing him, this, this guy playing, I'm quickly thinking about that heavy duty uh, dialectic of European American. That's number one. So that's what I meant by saying, here's a guy who's um, Austrian, playing at the Austrian Cultural Forum in London in 2012, and he's talking about playing jazz. He says he's talking about playing jazz in as much as he's been programmed by the Austrian Cultural Forum as playing jazz. And, and it's clear that we have these kind of definitions for reasons which I think are all entirely to do with well, I think that's to do with class, really. You know, whether you call something jazz or whether you call something classical. Um, it's to do with saying whether it's high or low. You know, it's to do with saying whether it's popular or elitist. You know, these are kind of like the big deal questions that rattle around my head uh, and have rattled around my head as, as a, you know, as a musician since, I don't know, I was about 12 or 14 when I'm being asked to go and play in a grade exam or something like that. I said, well, what are you grading? 
What are you saying? And, and, and what is the repertoire that's being chosen for the grade? At that concert, the player showed a, a high level of technique, as in an ability to play notes quick and fast. Oh, yes, indeed. But he showed very little understanding of dynamics of sound or groove, which is something that... We talked about. We talked about quite a lot. Is this commonplace now in, in what's called jazz, maybe also in the European school of it? Well, lack of, a lack of touch and groove. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Who knows? I, I mean, I don't know. Because you, know? like, you, you said that night that, that this guy, you know, he's on the career path. Yes. Like, that, that was quite shocking to me because I'm yeah. not somebody who, who follows, follows jazz. I'm somebody yeah. who listens to jazz, but yes. not somebody who follows it. What is this career path you were talking about? Well, it's prizes, isn't it? It's what we're talking about. So it, it's, it's, it's saying whether something is within or without the academy. And I know that the, this guy would have started young. He's, he's from... The country which has got, without a doubt, is, is a cornerstone of Western music, ex- Western musical expression. Mozart, for me, is it, right? You know, the, you know the, the next time I kind of come across Mozart in my life, musically speaking, in my musical life, is Keith Jarrett. That's, for me, how it goes. You know, it goes Mozart, Keith Jarrett. It goes Beethoven, Bill Evans. You know, that I, and I really mean it, you know, I really mean that as somebody who thinks about this stuff all day, practices this stuff all day, that, that's what I feel. So getting back to our, our pianist, he's managed to enter into competitions, uh, he's managed to be evaluated by those that know, who are sitting on boards, juries, etc. And they have said, right, I think it's time you become an ambassador for our country and for our, you know, for, for our cultural work here, and you can now go over to London and play to the people and demonstrate some kind of cultural, well, I don't know if it's superiority, but it may be. I mean, that may be the, the, the desire in music, just like in politics, just like in the world in general, that people are interested in, you know, domination of some kind and uh, subjugation. So now it's a good place to pause and put in a record? Yeah, why not? What, what record do you think we'd like to throw in there now? Well, I'm going to throw in uh, Janet Baker singing uh, uh, from the Handel opera Julius Caesar. Cool. Let's put it on. Put it on. How silently. That stealthy huntsman.
before about how when jazz first started to come onto the scene that Europeans were kind of confused by it, that Germans tried to make their own kind of version and it, it didn't work at all. Well that's my perception, yeah. I, I've got some kind of issue, and I'm not quite sure quite what it is yet, but I've got some kind of issue with the, with the way the word jazz started getting used in Europe just after the Second World War, as part of some kind of... As, as, as a useful music or a useful genre for Western composers to get hold of in their search for the solution to the end of the Austro-German tradition. I've got... You know, I've, been, I've read various things about how in the Weimar Republic you've got you've got a very very intense conflicting and conflicted but yet in a way vibrant artistic community, musical community and everything else in fact But I'm thinking particularly of composers I'm thinking of Schoenberg, of Kranich of Weil and Eisler and all of these kind of people and, and the big debate about whether this, this great tradition which seems to have ended, as it were, you know, this great tradition that ends with Mahler and Strauss, you know, which went from Bach through to Mozart and Beethoven and, and Haydn and Brahms and, you know, culminates in Wagner, which seems to kind of, you know, Wagner seems to be sort of pushing, you know, it seems to be this major influence on Hitler or something, you know, this, this, the power of music, the power of the ring, this power that we all know about with music, this, this incredible secret mysterious power that we are all after I mean it's simply mythological isn't it? it it's and when I say mythological I mean it's that fundamental like we know when something swings and we know when something doesn't and that's like talking about the ring isn't it who's got the power who's got the magic it's from my point of view now you know as somebody who's seen let's say the cultural hegemony move from from the German European world to the American world, yeah, and the popular song, and the massification of of, of mechanized music and music stars. That's something that's happened in in the whole of the twentieth century, and that's the that's the ballpark, if you like. That's the the playing field from which I listen to and learn and observe music, and not just me. Every single one of us. And I'm thinking, we laugh now, obviously, when we think of the hopeless attempts at trying to swing or trying to have something of the roots, something of the tradition of jazz when we hear recordings of German 
cabaret music or light music or whatever. You know, it's it's simply a joke kind of thing. So how much has jazz lost its roots and become simulated by the middle classes? You know, we're two white guys sitting yeah. here in London pontificating on the roots of jazz. yeah. yeah. I don't see why uh, something that then gets appropriated by or, or understood or even taken up by the middle classes means that it loses its vitality any more than you would say that, well, uh, a Hungarian folk song uh, loses its vitality when Brahms chooses to, you know, transcribe it and com- recompose it and turn it into his thing. I mean, this is this is a really interesting issue. The Brahms, you know, Brahms Hungarian dances sound like great music to me, sound like real music to me, as does the original Hungarian dance played by people who are alive today who've been passing it on through an oral tradition. But it's it's hard to imagine uh, uh, a rich white guy rapping authentically. Yeah, but it's not the other hard. Hand, to, do you know what I mean? Like, no, there's, there's something to it to, as well. Quite right, but it's not hard to imagine a, a rich white guy. And in fact, I've heard them. I've heard a. Uh, um, a, a kid from Eton uh, with his trio playing, you know, maybe playing a Herbie Hancock tune or something like that, and you know, and playing it very well, I would say, yeah. And and like the reason why he's playing it very well is because he's learnt the language or he's learnt the codes, you know. He's he's studied the music. He could have been studying a Beethoven sonata, yeah. But what's happened is a number of people over a period of time, maybe starting with Louis Armstrong, actually, maybe starting from the moment jazz started, have actually been, or Jelly Roll Morton in particular, let's say, would have been talking about this traditional music they're playing, would have been talking about this classical music they're playing. I've heard all kinds of musicians from Barry Harris, who's now in his 80s, who, who is literally the walking tradition of bebop, you know, through to, obviously, Winston Marsalis, through to Keith Jarrett... Miles Day, anybody, you know, all kinds of people, certainly everybody I went to college with, you know, we're all very, very aware of this thing called tradition, uh, and we're very, very aware of the reason why we want to call it tradition is to say that it is a serious classical music. In fact, it's not so much that it is a serious classical music as if it's divorced from serious classical music. My line is that it is where classical music went. It's the continuation so I don't see it in opposition. I don't see that... Uh, it's American classical. American classical music is not in opposition to Austro-German, European, Western art music. It's what people who are very talented and very gifted did with the, the, the German thing. Because the Germans were finished, you know? It's like, I'm afraid to say, that's the end of your reign. That's the end of the superpower. Now, what's kind of interesting is we're probably at the end of the American superpower. Uh, you know, I was I was doing an interview with Peter Ind, who's um, an English musician who's 84. Um, Peter Ind went to study this classical music we're talking about here uh, in, in New York in the late 40s, early 50s, and he studied with Lenny Tristano. So, you know, Peter's sense of uh, the, his observation about American a, first of all, about what we're talking about is he, he just said, the balls are in the air, you know, be, you, you can't really tell. If you listen carefully, you can tell whether the music's coming from the heart or not. And that's, I guess, what we're talking about, vitality. But he's certainly aware of the fact that he says, I haven't been to America for a long time. A lot of people are saying, well, you know, it's on the wane. It's the end, you know, it's the end of its 
maybe both political and cultural reign, you know. So we just had the phenomenon of Gangnam style. So that's like our first K-pop, Korean pop. Yeah. Are we, are we due to get some uh, Chinese music soon? Uh, yeah, because, I mean, if you've got the money, then, then you can uh, create the buzz. Isn't that the case? I'm pretty aware that, I, that when you're going back to why you were saying you hadn't heard of Sun Ra, but you may have heard of any number of other things, yeah, any, and any number of stuff which we would call rubbish. The reason why you've heard of rubbish and you haven't heard of quality is because of money, isn't it? I think that's what it is. I mean, I'll, I'll read you my little thing that I was going to say to you anyway, or a statement that I've been thinking about. And, and obviously, everything I'm saying is this anyway. But I, I realise that I'm obsessed with how the English class system permeates almost every aspect of my musical life. And I actually wonder if it's just me, or if indeed the English class system permeates almost every aspect of English musical life as a whole. And I suspect that's the case. So, in a way, one of my ambitions is to prove this. Now, how do I prove that? that you know, I, I've also had a thought about whether that is a political truth or an artistic truth or a mathematical proof. How can I say what I've just said, which is that we, we, we've had Gangnam Style because of money? Now, what, are, what am I going to use? I mean, you're the economist, and I've just told you that I'm, I'm interested in art from the point of view or you know the main idea that that, that that sort of you know pushing through my you know my, my concepts about art is is one that's come from an economist it's coming from Marx or someone isn't it it's someone who's saying look commodification is one thing also true political power and 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 the money that goes I mean when we when I'm talking about Mozart and when I'm talking about Haydn they are part of a system of maybe world domination, right? I got a feeling that the Austro-German Empire was pretty loaded, right? Had quite a lot of money and had quite a lot of military power. So if we're talking about when the next great pop hit is going to... And, and when we're getting to America, when, when it's time for Elvis to hit the charts, or even jazz itself, or even Duke Ellington, or, or Benny Goodman, or Artie Shaw when it's time for these guys to rock the world like they did. We suspect that, um, you know, an atom bomb's about to be dropped somewhere and that the people who are able to collate the greatest minds in the world to make that bomb and to have the money to make that bomb was the American superpower itself, right? And that's the culture, you know, it's an atom. You know, it's not ironic in this sense that Count Basie, one of his greatest albums, is called Atomic, right? And it has the picture of a nuclear bomb mushroom cloud going up. And that music swings. So on, on that note, what's the next track you want to play? <laughs> well, I think we'll do Miles. I think we're going to go for um, a piece by uh, Miles Davis. Uh, it's his interpretation of George Gershwin's My Man's Gone Now. It's from the early 80s. It's from a band that I saw uh, when I was you know, a kid at the Hammersmith Odeon. I went on my own. I think I was filming Grange Hill at the time, and um, you were filming. Grange yeah, Hill. I was. I was in Grange Hill, so I was in show business. Yeah, I was. I was doing this. I was. I was a commodity. I was Just very to happy. clarify for our non-UK <laughs> people, Grange Hill was a soap for children. That's right, a soap for children. So I'd I'd quickly uh, been you know subsumed into the commodification 
stroke culture industry or whatever Walter ben- Benjamin might define it as. And, uh, and I thought, well, with my money and my independence now, I think I might go and check out some culture. I'm going to go and hear Miles play with Mike Stern, Marcus Miller, Minu Chinilu, and Al Foster, and Bill Evans, and that's Bill Evans, the saxophone player. And uh, it was uh, a phenomenon, you know. Well, let's put it on. Yeah. When we met the first time at the Austrian jazz gig, that weekend I'd been to a dance performance in the Royal Opera House, part of an African culture festival. Like I was hoping to see some brilliant African dancers, but what we got was a bunch of extremely white ballet slash modern dance dancers. And they lacked any of the kind of natural rhythm that I was hoping to see and the vitality of a of this African dance. There was a dance-off at the end and they all look clueless as to actually how to do a dance-off, you know, yeah. something ex- entirely a- alien to them. What, what is it about the kind of institutionalising of, of an art form or the theorising of an art form that seems to rob them of their life force? It's easy to say that and I think it's a baby in a bathwater situation. So I'll have to come back to the... European classical model if we use that as some kind of sort of baseline. Now, in classical music, I know that a lot of people talk about how certain things have robbed the music of its vitality. 
recording uh, because then people are starting to go into studios and try and make perfect recordings and they're editing and then they start trying to perform like the recording that they've made or like they've heard or like other people have made and so the whole thing's going off at this crazy tangent yeah, which is all coming again back down to show business and making money and creating a cachet uh, or a, a star you know, it's all about star system. And it's a star system through mechanisation, obviously. That's really what it's about. S sold X number of records. Therefore, you can now do a tour. No one does a tour unless they've sold a lot of records, right? Because who are they going to tour to? Who's going to show up at the gig? So that, that seems to be one strand. So even in the, the art form where apparently you know there's there's total integrity let's say it's classical music it's we all know what it is uh, we there are lots of people who've who uh, have an entire lifetime dedicated to one you know being specialists in one area they all come together and they come in these concentrated places you know academies and 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 high you know elitist um, academic institutions where this whole thing can be kept alive which would assume that it must have vitality right because it's being kept alive and what you're talking about is noticing that there might actually be a lot of vitality outside of those kind of structures structures yeah and that's obviously the first thing i must have noticed subcon you know without ever having giving it, giving it any kind of thought this is something that I just noticed, or we all noticed straight away about music in the 20th century, growing up in music, with music in the 20th century. Is it's not just the standard classical European repertoire that seems to have vitality and beauty. There seems to be, it seems to be pouring out of all kinds of places. And obviously the place where it starts to be really, really strong, as I notice being a piano player, is from the American classical music, jazz. It's just sort of like, well, it's just staring me in the face. I didn't realise that because I might have started listening to a different kind of American heritage music. I might have been listening to like Neil Young and Bob Dylan and Joni Mitchell, songwriters and, and, and the popular song. We, we, we kind of talk about how we're all growing up, say, as composers. You know, I consider myself to be a composer. You know, I consider myself to be a thinking member of the Western European canon, you know, and I think about stuff like music, I think about beautiful music, I think about what is beauty, I think about what's eternally beautiful, I think about whether we're going forward, whether we're going backwards, whether we are being popular, whether we're being elitist. I think, you know, these are all the key themes for any human being making music in London, for example, today. When you listen to classical music, back in the day of Bach or Mozart or these yeah. things. It was really beautiful music and very yes. easily accessible. And like, yeah. So the common man could hear it and go, yeah. geez, that's, that's really it. nice. Yeah. But he was excluded on, a, on, on an economic basis. He couldn't mm. afford to go to the yeah. Opera House or to Royal Albert Hall or this. Once the, once the common man was actually able to afford to go to these classical music events, mm. we, we see the nature of the classical music get more abstract, mm. more atonal, more arrhythmic. Mm. It's like that there was an effort to somewhat exclude the common man from this kind of elitist type of music where you needed 
maybe a you know a university education mm. or a high pain threshold or whatever you want mm. to call it. Yeah, to appreciate. I this. think that is a high pain threshold. Yeah. A university education. Yeah, is, is jazz following the same trajectory? I think it's it's about that. But it's following the trajectory, I guess, from a very different point of view. People talked about the bebop movement as being one that was creating a club or creating an elitist club uh, for those in the know. That's what, in fact, that's what the language of hip is. That's what hip means, or that's what the language of cool is. That's what it means to be cool, is to be in the know. That's to be elite, in a way, okay? But, you know, uh, it seems to me that it, that was done for different reasons. It was done by people who were brilliant and who were clearly members of the genius elite and they were not being recognised as such and not being treated as such and they did not have their concert hall with which to do this. So they made their own concert hall, yeah, and I, and I believe this is what the power of the Harlem Renaissance was all about because you're talking about a really the coming together of Western art, you know, uh, the, the, the new explosion of, of all of that genius that starts maybe with Leonardo or something like that and ends with Duke Ellington. You know, this is the claim and um, I wholeheartedly support it. Talk a bit more about this Harlem Renaissance. Well, you know, I don't actually know a lot about it. But I would say we're talking about people like Langston Hughes, writers like Langston Hughes and James Baldwin, and musicians like Duke Ellington. And it was about a lot of people getting together in a part of Manhattan, profligating their work in that part of Manhattan and saying, we need to get on and do our own thing. And, and our own thing is of the very highest quality, believe you me. And you may wish to put it on in a club, and you may wish to own it because you're gangsters, and you may wish to only admit whites because it's a, a racist society. But nevertheless, what I'm going to do now is, you know, the the second stage of Richard Strauss. You know, this is I knew Brahms. I knew a teacher who knew Brahms. You know, so it might be Duke Ellington saying something like this. And I'm now the new Brahms. You know, just like somebody like uh, Arthur Rubinstein said of Art Tatum, well, if he starts playing Chopin and Liszt, I'm giving up. But, you know, Art Tatum didn't need to play Chopin and Liszt. He was his own composer. He was his own composer, philosopher, pianist. He was Art Tatum. That's where the tradition of Chopin and Liszt went, if you like. I remember reading about a tour of Ireland by Liszt back in the 1800s, yeah. and he would give a recital in some hall or whatever and yeah. you know it would go very well yeah. and then afterwards he'd go back to his hotel and there'd be a piano there yeah. and he would play for like eight hours yeah. straight yeah. and everybody would just go absolutely that's wild it. for him like princes after show parties absolutely after, yeah. after show jams yeah, that's and, it. and then I compare that to what we saw the young Austrian jazz pianists play Yeah, and I, I, it's like a reversal of what you would think jazz would be and what yes. classical yes. where you can see that classical perhaps yeah. you, you can see I can see why you say that jazz is, is classical and how we can have that vibrancy yes exactly and what you're saying is a reversal because the guy playing the gig was in the straitjacket of high culture he was stuck in the straitjacket of high culture but what's ironic is in the era of 
pre the pre era of mechanization and and American cultural supremacy, Liszt was actually uh, the pop star. But that was in the good old days, if you like. And obviously, this is pure nostalgia. It's in the good old days when high art was low art, was popular art. It was all unified. Liszt was the big man. It really happened. Well, you know, I went to hear Keith Jarrett play at the Festival Hall in 2009, and that was what you're describing. That was the Liszt concert, you know, that was the gig. I was hearing a composer, I was hearing a thinker, I was hearing somebody coming out of the tradition, I was hearing everything. I was hearing total a total expression of the now, of the here and now, you know. So let's play our next piece of music what have you got for us? Yeah, on this list. I must say something about this 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 list of ten as well, and how and, and just how. Yeah, well, it's yeah. The number is arbitrary. <laughs> Not only are the numbers arbitrary, but actually the choices are arbitrary. It's such an impossible thing to do, and and it's kind of and I want to talk about it because it's such an interesting thing that we have to do i mean i'm not this is what i'm saying to you also about the sort of time and space aspects of this of this interview is it's like well we're not going to get to the end of the interview we're not going to get to the end of my list the list isn't 10 and it and and no matter what i choose to say or even say by putting on a recording or even say by playing i never really get to the end do i you know it's it's incredibly infinite and yet i find myself complaining about how I don't have enough time because most of my time is spent wading through bullshit and and of course we do when we go back to talking about list we wonder if list or you know or his fans or the people who went to the gig if they had the same issue uh, I'm pretty sure they must have done you know is that most of life seems to be uh, a waste of life, if you like, and and the the real bit, the real bit of living, the vitality that you're talking about, um, is is just it's very very hard to focus on that. And I guess I can now see why people might want to become, you know, a Quaker or a Buddhist or get into these these spiritual zones where they say, well, look, I only want to do the concentrated stuff, you know, I only want to be. Um, a vegan I only want to be a Marxist I only want to be an early music specialist I only want to be a rapper because that is keeping it real all of these things are keeping it real so I'm sort of talking about myself now and sort of talking about my my struggle with I don't know what you call it eclecticism or postmodern eclecticism or something because yes I, 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 I'm dealing with all these things but I only want to deal with all these things so I can deal with the one thing and, and I suppose it's about the method of distilling is what we're most is what I'm most concerned with. Say, as a composer, I'll play you another thing. This is John Adams. Then he's somebody who's, who I think has, has has done something really special. He's he's done exactly what I guess I'm talking about. He's a, he's an American composer. Um, he writes orchestral music, uh, and he's distilling all of the things we're talking about into his you know, very personable voice to quote Alex Ross, who's a lovely writer about music. It's the setting of Emily Dickinson's poem Wild Nights. Let's do it. Yeah.
you know, and, and I tell you where I first uh, developed this nugget of an idea and wasn't able to continue it was when I went to study music in America, where I thought I was going to do something truthful and beautiful because I was there for this, you know, I was there for Miles, I was there for something, you know, and like actually it was the most alienating place I've ever been in my life you know it just literally is what the, you know, the jazz scene there the, the music school where I was at and you could call that the jazz scene there the music school was a jazz school it's yeah, known yeah. as a jazz school so what school is it to? Berkeley College of Music okay yeah 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 it's a disgrace man absolute disgrace why you know? not because the school's a disgrace but because the scene is a disgrace so I guess what I'm trying to say is I didn't realize yeah that, that the music I hear doesn't express the conditions within which that music is made we think it does, yeah. but it's all bullshit. You don't really realise that. Yeah, you yeah. Know? And, and like something like rap is one example of how they choose to try and say, this is how it is, yeah. and I'm going to tell you exactly how it, it is, is. Yeah. with words, with the groove, with the beat, with yeah, the production, yeah. with the drops, you know, yeah, with the yeah. samples, with everything else. But I'm also really going to tell you how it is because this is going to be about my social economic condition. And I'll be using very explicit language to say so. I will be saying things like, by any means necessary. Yeah, I'll be talking about black separatism, or I'll be talking about Malcolm X, I'll be talking about stuff. And like when you're getting back to the elitism thing and saying talking about bebop or something, it's like, well, are these guys explicitly talking about black separatism or not? You know, it's music. It's, it's a bit harder to say. And, it, and likewise, when, when Schoenberg come, you know, comes up with his serial system, is he actually talking about Austro-German cultural, cultural supremacy? In a way, he is. He's saying, you know how I came up with this? I came up with this because I'm down with Bach, Beethoven, Brahms and all the cats. I'm down with these boys. That's why I've come up with a tonal thing. That's why it still belongs with me. You know, okay, I'm Jewish. You've got this raving, you know, Wagner head. Yeah, well, actually, this is the irony, isn't it? Is yeah, we know what you know. What I'm going to say is, is of course, Mahler is Jewish, and was uh, one of the greatest conductors of Wagner ever. And in fact, it was Mahler's performances of Wagner that really turned Hitler on, yeah? So that's like Hitler going to, like, a public enemy concert, right? That's like you talking about about Liszt or something and saying, whoa, man, this is the way the world could be. Let's do it. It's a Schubert trio, uh, B-flat major, which is D-898. It's a second movement, and it's these guys, man. This is an amazing...
mega technocratic industry where people have to specialise to such an extent that they don't know fuck all about anything except the one little job that they have to do. So you could be talking about a member of an orchestra. I couldn't understand this for years. I've only just really... The penny's only just dropped. The penny dropped, actually, when I was listening to a friend of mine who's a composer and workshop leader called um, Jackie Waldock. And Jackie invited me to do a a two-day workshop with her and her band. She She has a band, an improvising band of classical musicians you know, playing uh, traditional classical European instruments like flute and double bass and stuff like that, clarinet. And she invited me to do a two-day workshop with them that that, that she was running at the Wigmore Hall. So, you know, it's a classical outfit, you know, it's the Wigmore Hall's flagship educational outreach project. So she kind of understands a lot about, you know, music and how it functions in society and classical music and grants and all the rest of it, you know, she's kind of clued up on all of that stuff. She started with a really interesting composer, really uh, a great composer as well. He's a, called Jonathan Harvey. But it was interesting talking to Jackie about this stuff and me saying, yeah, you know, I just still keep on framing music in this social economic context. To me, that's still really the first stage on which I kind of relate to, not to music, but relate to the business of making music. Like, I would think, listening to something like Sun Ra, or even Alfred Cortot or Miles there, you know, like, wow, what what were the conditions that shaped this music? How did they get there? What was the state of mind? And also, what's the state of mind of people collectively? When you start listening to people who are improvising, you think, man, how did they do that? How did they know? And all this, you know, it's an incredible thing. And we were talking, and she was saying, well, even, even at my, you know, even at Sussex and everything, we, we never really talk about the social economic origins of music you talk about the kind of organic she said i think or biological like oh it's a hot country so you 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 play this kind of music or it's a cold country so you know everyone's indoors and and you know it's symphonic and you know these these sort of things phenomenons to do with acoustics and stuff and and how instruments develop and you know like length and drumming drumming and communicating across distances and all that sort of stuff but none of that's really uh, you know when you get into the 20th century Certainly, and even before that, as you know, by the time you've by the time you've gone post feudal, you really do need to talk about how society is organised and about how that's starting to affect the way people play, compose, and listen to and engage with music. And it's extraordinary that people just don't talk about it. You know, it's it's just like a, a bizarre taboo. You know, and I can tell you that in America, I really couldn't talk about it. That's that's one place where you don't talk about it. That's what I think was extraordinary, you know, that's, that's what I found. But, you know, you can't talk about these things really in any kind of a, a way. If you look towards, say, economics, yeah. how it's taught, it, yes. after Marx yeah. came along and he came up with a labour theory of value, economics just systematically had to ditch anything to do with, with labour creating value yeah. and just ditch the entire thing. One can't talk about certain things in polite society. This is the thing, it's like, as you say, polite society, when you actually start talking about uh, money and, and ownership, uh, of course you are, you are cursing. You, I, might, I might as well be using you know, four-letter words, right? I remember I was over in America and I was staying with this uh, guy in San Diego and he, was set up, he had his own small business going and I was talking to him about it and he was 
saying that he was after reading Richard Branson's mm. autobiography or mm. something or how to become a successful businessman. And he said that the key to it was getting other people to work for you. And it really struck me at the time as in kind of going, wow, that's, that's kind of exploitative, not knowing about mm. Marx. That's essentially Marx's labour theory of value yeah. right there. And it, it was so explicit yeah. by, a, by a capitalist when they would say it in a certain way, like, yeah. this is how you get rich. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. On, the other, <laughs> on the other side is like, you know, the, the moral aspect of it is it's completely, completely ignored in any kind of a, an institutional yes. setting. It's, yeah, we're right. You don't actually talk about emotion, as it were. You don't actually talk about people. You don't talk about, I don't know, humiliation, denigration. And, and similarly in the music, it seems like that you can't in polite society talk about such things as why rap, why jazz. Yes. Why trad Irish music? Why, yeah. why this? Yeah. Why that? Yeah. yeah. Which is, um, well, for me, uh, I find constricting, you know? So therefore, I'm not really free. And I'm not really free to express. Therefore, I'm not really being spontaneous. And I would say one of the key goals of true music is spontaneity. And I, and I think that is a universal principle of music, if you like. I think that classical classical piano competitions one of the key things that they'll all be listening for or hoping to discover is spontaneity from the performer like they're going to be playing Bach like you've like it's being played for the first time wow I've never heard Rachmaninoff 2 played like that meaning you've never heard Rachmaninoff 2 yeah I know exactly how it goes um, you've just got to tick all the boxes and then I've heard it it's like no I don't want that you want a, a different kind of truth well, in order to have that truth, one needs to be free as a player, you know. Now, I don't know if that's a curse, if that's just a curse on me, that, that my, my notion of freedom is to be able to live in a world where we talk about the things you've just said we can't talk about. I don't know how that's happened. That must be something to do with my mother. That's an entirely separate interview. <laughs> Well, on that note, yeah. uh, thanks very much, Dorian, for thank talking you. to me today. Yeah, thank you. On this episode... You heard the theme tune, The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters, by Sun Ra and his orchestra. Janet Baker singing How Silently, How Slyly, from Handel's Julius Caesar. And Miles Davis's interpretation of George Gershwin's My Man's Gone Now. You also heard John Adams' orchestral piece, Wild Nights, trio number one, by Franz Schubert, played by Jacques Thibault. Pablo Casals and Alfred Cortot. And you are now listening to the inimitable Charlie Parker with Embraceable You. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. <laughs>